Good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. Uh, We're glad to have you here in God's house. My name is Chris, the senior pastor here at Trinity, and we're just thankful to have you here uh, together. Just to give a a, a heads up, we're going to be modifying our uh, communion practice uh, just in light of all the concerns that are that are swirling around the coronavirus and like we said last week you know our commitment here and I think frankly the call that's out there for all of us is to uh, be prudent and and also not panic and so we're going to we're going to do our best um, to to modify in ways that I think are going to help give us the space to be together uh, without feeling like we're being pushed into places where we're uncomfortable um, so you'll notice there there's not wine uh, in, in the building, and we'll walk you through how we're going to do communion at the end. Before we look at Romans 4, I just want to celebrate Alpha. If you've been here over the last number of months, you've heard us talk about Alpha, which for us is a seven-week course where we explore the basics of Christian faith, where we invite both Christians and non-Christians alike into a community setting to hear a talk and share a meal and engage in discussion. And we just wrapped Alpha up on a Thursday of last week. We held Alpha at the Monday Night Garage over there on Lee Street in the West End. And y'all, it was just an unbelievably beautiful and powerful time. I was privileged to be a group leader. Uh, lots of you in this room were involved in Alpha. And those seven weeks, I think, saw uh, a lot of God stuff happen. And people come to know Jesus. We've seen people become friends of God over the last seven weeks. Uh, lives changed. And Um, growing in community and hospitality. And so I just want to say thank you, Jesus, for this. At Trinity here on the west side, we're going to be committing to Alpha twice a year. So if you missed out this time around, uh, this is going to be available to you coming up in the fall of this year. And we are just so, so thankful for what the Lord has done. Uh, There were close to 400 people who gathered for our Alpha course and just a treasure and a gift uh, to us. And I think the Lord is pleased. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Romans 4. We're going to continue our Lenten journey toward the cross by looking at the teaching of Paul. And I'm going to read the first five verses and then skip down to verse 13. Uh, Not because we're trying to duck anything, but because we want to get to the meat of this this chapter uh, and see what the Lord would have us to see. So rather than read 17 verses, we're going to read just a few short of that. Paul says, what then are we to say was gained by Abraham, our ancestor, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, to one who works, wages are not reckoned as a gift, but as something due. But to the one who without works trusts him who justifies the ungodly, such faith is reckoned as righteousness. Verse 13 For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law, adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only the adherents of the law, but to those of us who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of all of us. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. 
Father, we ask for grace today to hear our brother Paul, to understand a little more probably about Paul's immediate context in Rome, what they were facing. I pray that you would help us, God, connect this, these words, these lofty words, these powerful words to something that applies right where we live, Lord. We ask you to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if I had a quarter for every enthusiastic Christian who wanted to dig into Romans to wrap their head around all of it, I would have more quarters than could fit on this stage, probably. One of the great challenges in front of us as modern people when we read passages like this is that depending on where you grew up in terms of church, passages like this are a kind of litmus test for purity or theological clarity. Um, We think Paul here is just simply speaking about systematic theological ideas pertaining to works and faith or righteousness through works or righteousness through faith. And while that is a part of what Paul is saying, I think we have to be very careful to let Paul say what Paul says. Um, Paul is not catching on to something that Wayne Grudem understood first. And if you don't know who Wayne Grudem is, bless your heart. Um, That's fine. He's a systematic theologian. Uh, Paul is not also trying to um, echo N.T. Wright's profound insight. Paul's writing in the first century to Christians who are trying to work out what it means to live out their lives in light of a ton of uncertainty, what it means to trust God versus trust other things. And so my hope for us today is that while we're aware, and maybe you're not aware, it's easier actually for those of you who've not spent a bunch of time hanging out with Christians who like to argue about things to hear some of the thrust of what Paul's saying here. But for those of you who have spent time hearing people argue, who think, okay, I know exactly where this is going, I would just ask you to let, let Paul say some things to you. Uh, maybe even understand a little bit about what Paul was speaking into so that we could hear him Um, in a way that would actually land in our hearts and in our ears. As we said last week, our goal is to distill huge ideas. And that's really what Paul was doing. He was taking huge ideas and trying to bring them into lived experience. And we're not doing something terribly dissimilar to that. We're trying to take big ideas and distill them into how does this then therefore work? What is God actually saying for me that will work for me and make me think about life on Monday morning? So that's what we're going to do. We're just going to look at a few um, movements in this passage that will help us ask some questions that maybe Paul was trying to get his friends in Rome to ask. And the first one is this. What makes us secure before God? Uh, As Paul begins to speak about Abraham, and as he speaks to the people in the church in Rome, Paul was addressing this question. Now for Abraham, who is a feature principal character in this passage and in our Bibles, in the Jewish story for sure, but also for all the Christians in Rome who were Jews, the answer to what makes me secure before God would have been very clear. Um, Abraham would have said, my ethnicity and my observance of the law. And the Jews in Rome would have said, my ethnicity, I'm a part of the people of God, the chosen race, the chosen people, and my observance of the Torah. That's what makes me secure. And Paul is living in a situation where the early church is now made up of Jew and Gentile. It's not just a Jewish thing. 
And you can't even begin to understand how flippin' stressful that was for the early church because Jews and Gentiles had been taught specifically to stay away from each other. And here they are in Rome, in Corinth, across the board in the early church. There's this huge tension between insiders and outsiders. Jews who were circumcised and Gentiles who were not. Jews who were very meticulous about what they ate and Gentiles who bought their meat at the local pagan butcher shop. These things were more stressful than you could even imagine. And so Paul looks at the early church and he speaks specifically to the majority culture of the early church, the Jewish Christians, Jews who observed the law and who had come to trust in Jesus. And he says to them, Abraham's Jewishness had nothing to do with him being justified before God. Abraham's Jewishness did not earn him a thing. And I'm gonna say it again. Abraham's race And his adherence to the law did not bring him into a peaceful, aligned relationship with God. Paul is living in a Christian situation where the Jews were saying to the Gentiles, trust in Jesus, but also live as a cultural Jew. Convert, be circumcised, live the way we live, eat the way we eat, dress the way we dress, do the things. And Paul is looking at these people and he's saying, Abraham, his belief, his trust, his movement toward God, his adherence and reception of the promise. And we're gonna talk about that in a minute. That's what brought Abraham into a place of justification. Not his Jewishness, not his privilege, not his insider position, not his piety, not these works things he did or where he comes from. These did not make him right before God. Something else made him right before God. So what does this mean for us? I think in some very significant way, This means that God is inviting us to recognize that we've all been grafted into a very new family, that every person who becomes Christian, whether you grew up this way or you're just coming to it, one of the great gifts for me of Alpha is sitting with tons of people who did not grow up with this whole faith thing. And the call to them and the call for those of you who were born under the altar of the church is the same. You're being called, I'm being called to be a part of a new family, to move to this new reality where Jesus does something for us that we can never, ever, ever do for ourselves. And he invites both the insider and the outsider alike, the old timer, the expert and the newcomer and the one who doesn't know any of the rules to move toward the same new identity, which is what it means to be a part of the family of God. Your adherences, your adherence to particular spiritual practices do not make you right before God. I remember reading uh, Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline, which I still think is probably one of the best books to read about the spiritual life. And I remember thinking, if I could just memorize and do all these things, I'll be fine. I'll be right. I'll grow. I'll be the kind of person of peace that I want to be. And I realized that it was only in coming into contact with an alignment with the God of Richard Foster that I was able to become a person increasingly who embodies peace. That's essentially what Paul is saying. We have to come and recognize that God is calling us to trust, not just work. Number two, the promise. So what's the promise? 
If we're not really clear about the promise of Abraham, then we won't really know what it means. And I just want to say to you that if we don't stop and think a little bit about the very beginning of our Bible in a passage like this, we're going to get confused about exactly what the promise actually looks like. Um, A lot of people have said that Paul is simply just addressing works versus faith in this passage. And while I do believe that's in Paul's purview here, it's not the entirety of what Paul is addressing. And I think that becomes really clear when you read a text like this, a passage like this, in light of the reality of what was going on in the early church and in Rome. Um, What Paul is saying about promise pertaining to Abraham means that you have to go all the way back to Genesis 12, 13, 14, and 15. Because that's where God took a guy named Abram who was old, who was nationless, who felt like life had passed him by. And he looked at Abram before he changed his name to Abraham. And he said to Abram, two things. I'm going to make you fruitful. And Abram's like, but my wife's old and I'm old and life has passed us by. We're disqualified. He said, nope, you're going to be the father of many nations. And some of you did some VBS songs about that when you were kids and it's come, they're coming back to you now. <laughs> father Abraham had many sons. Well, he didn't when God spoke to him. He was old and barren and his wife was probably older. It was done. And then God said, before anything good happened, God said, and this abundant people of yours are going to walk through horrible trial, but I will see them through. So what's the promise? The promise is, Abraham, it's not your Jewishness. It's not your piety. It's will you say yes to impossible things? And will you stick with me even when it seems like things are going south? And Abraham said, yes. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He didn't say, I'd like to see the fine print. He didn't say, yes, but. He didn't say, well, that doesn't work out. And everything God promised, go back and read Genesis 12, 13, 14, and 15. The things God promised seemed like things that didn't make any sense. God looked at Abraham and said, I am a way maker, a promise keeper, a miracle worker. Will you say yes to me or will you demand more and more evidence? And I find it so ironic that sometimes we want to argue theology. We want to argue about systematic ideas, but we're afraid to trust God with impossible things. And one of the things that God said to Abraham, and one of the reasons why I think Paul was saying this at such a critical moment to the church in Rome, is he was saying, you're being confronted with impossible things, and it's not your piety, and it's not where you come from that's going to get you through this. It's going to be something else that only God can do. And if you're not a Christian, that means looking to Jesus to do for you something that you could never, ever, ever do on your own. If you are a Christian, it still applies today. This is not just something that you decide at an altar. This is about how you deal with your own impossibilities today. Your own uncertainties today. And Paul here in the wisdom of God is helping a group of Christians figure out how to let go of demanding guarantees. And I feel this desire to demand a guarantee, to ask God for more information. I would prefer it if my family didn't have to extend to the ends of the earth. I would like to just be with people I wanna be with. And I would prefer if we didn't have to walk through darkness and difficulty and pain and trial. And yet God says, those are the things. Will you say yes? 
And I believe he says the same thing to us today. And the third movement in this passage is that Abraham said yes and his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. The fact that he said yes put him in a right and aligned relationship with God. But we have to be very careful because some of us in the church hear faith as righteousness and we start to think, oh, I know that that's a systematic theological idea. And I just want to say to you, Paul was saying something before people thought about those things. And those things are really important to think about. But if you ascend up into your head in a passage like this and you don't think about what it actually means, you're missing something that God may have for you. There's a space to do that digging, but let's think about, let's let Paul say some things to us. So we have to be very careful with the phrase faith reckoned as righteousness, because on one hand, we cannot assume that faith equals moral goodness. Well, if I'm just good, then I'm righteous. And so faith must mean be good. Because if we do that, what we do is we begin to believe that we can earn right standing and alignment before God. And some of you have worn yourself out trying to do that. You're just like, I just can't be good enough. Or you become hypocritical because you think I got to fake it till I make it. So we have to be very careful that we don't hear faith equals be good, morally good. But we also should not assume that faith is antithetical to moral goodness. That faith means sloppy agape. Just, it's Greek. It's like a nerdy joke. Faith means nothing I do matters because the Bible doesn't teach that. Paul doesn't teach that. This is where you have to be really careful not to get into one category or the other. This is where I think God calls us to act like and be grownups. Paul spends a great deal of time, as to the other teachers, including Jesus, saying the way you live matters and yet you can't earn this. And, and honestly, church, can we hold those two things in tension? That the way you live matters and you can't earn a thing? Can both of those be true? They have to both be true. So what does this mean for us? N.T. Wright says this, Abraham's faith was the sure sign that he was in partnership with God. Faith and trust are the response of a heart aligned to God's purposes. Abraham aligned to God's purposes. He didn't have all the answers, but he said, I'm gonna step out and place the weight of my life on something that I cannot fully see or quantify. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He was walking in alignment with the purposes of God. Faith and belief are what happens when we cast our lot in with God. Abraham said yes. He wanted to say yes, but... Do you ever see Pee-wee's Big Adventure? There's a, there's a great line in that, in that movie where a woman looks at Pee-wee and says, you know, everybody's got a big butt, Pee-wee. What, what's your big butt? And what she was trying to say was that when you insert the word butt in a sentence, you can really forget everything you said before it. Like, I trust you, but don't focus on I trust you. Focus on what they're about to say. Um, we're friends, but I like my job, but what the person really wants to say is after the big, but, and I believe that what God wants you and me to recognize is that Abraham, like you probably had a yes, but in his heart. But what he said was yes. 
And then he fell forward. Don't read the Bible under the soft glow of the moonlight church. Abraham pretended that his wife was his sister. He didn't do this perfectly. He was afraid of getting in trouble. He threw tons of people under the bus. He stumbled his way through life. And yet the writers of the New Testament say that he's one of the heroes of our faith because he said, yes. Is God asking you to say yes and then be perfect? No, he's just asking you to say yes and move. Courage is not not being afraid. Courage is being scared to death and saying yes anyway. And we live in a world that tells us why well, I just need more information. I, I, I'll say yes, but I need to dig a little. I need to know a little more. I need to be assured of a little more. I need to have more guarantees. Abraham did not have guarantees. He said yes to God. And I would say to you today that if you're in the place of trying to figure out whether you would be Christian, the Lord is probably inviting you not to check your brain at the door, but he might, might be inviting you to just say what's going on in your heart and is Jesus able to do something for you that nothing else could do and you certainly can't do and maybe just say yes and step out. But if you're a Christian, are you absolved of that responsibility to say yes when you're facing uncertainty? Absolutely not. And our brother Paul makes this so powerfully clear. And the last movement of this text is maybe the thing that roots us back in what matters most. Our God is able to give life to the dead and call no things into existence. A play on word, no things, nothings. Where are you facing a nothing? Where is there something dead? Where do you feel like I just can't go any further in my own strength? Where do you think if I read another Christian book, if I listen to another podcast or another sermon without having some sort of breakthrough in this thing with Jesus, I'm just gonna, my head's gonna pop off. Where you come from and how hard you try, you have to remember that only God is able to bring dead things to life. Only God is able to bring resurrection to bear. We can't do it because of where we come from or what we know or what we learn or what we try to accomplish. This is something and there comes a point in life where we all run into dead ends and God says, it's either going to be me or it isn't going to be anything. And I will tell you, you don't know what you're made of and what your faith journey looks like until you hit one of those dead ends. Abraham hit the dead end and then there was life on the other side. The Jews in the church have hit dead end after dead end. Peter hit the dead end. Andrew hit the dead end. John hit the dead end. And then they had to find out what was on the other side. You never really know what you believe until you hit the dead end. And where do we believe that God might be up to something in the midst of some impossible situations? Where do we need to hear that God actually is a way maker? Are you? Am I? Can I solve all my problems and figure this thing out? To a point. You know, you know what they say, it works till so it doesn't work. Abraham looked at God, then he looked at his wife, and then he looked at his physical body, and he looked at the fact that he didn't have a home. And God said, are we moving or are we not moving? And Abraham said, yes. 
And he was brought into the hall of fame of faith because he said yes. Yes. Impossible things? Yes, God. Jesus, I believe, is inviting each and every one of us to learn how to say yes. And if you're not a Christian, I think that means saying yes to him and moving over the line of faith. If you are a Christian, I think it means saying yes to him and moving further on into your faith. Two things I want to say to you that are in this passage. Our God, our way maker God is, according to St. Paul, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. And we who believe, according to our brother St. Paul, are those who share the faith of Abraham, for he is the father of all of us. If you are a Christian, as a Gentile, you share the faith of Abraham because he said yes, and he's invited you to say yes. And when you say yes, you're in, you're grafted into the family. And there are some of you in this room, just like there have been at Alpha, who would say, I'm not yet Christian, but I feel drawn in my heart. And I would just say to you that this may be the day for you to just in the quiet of this space, as we prepare to come to communion for you, just to close your eyes and say, God, I don't know what it all means any more than Abraham knew what it all meant, but I just say yes to you. This isn't working if I do it on my own. So I'm just going to go with you. You're, you're in, you do that. You're part of the family of God. You don't have to know the magic words. You just have to say Yes. But if you're a Christian today, I believe the Lord is asking you to look at your life and learn where is God inviting you to say yes. Maybe where is he inviting you to say yes to things that feel impossible or to things that feel difficult. You never get to stop saying yes. The goal actually is that the older you get and the thinner your life becomes, the more you're able to say yes. Peter, at the end of his life, um, said yes to things that he didn't want to say yes to. Jesus told him a story at the end of the Gospel of John, and he said, when you were young, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted to go, but when you get old, you're going to be dressed by other people, and they're going to take you where you don't want to go. And then he looked at him and said, follow me. really wasn't terribly different from what God said to Abraham. Follow me. I don't, where you go, You don't know. Will you just say yes to go with God? There's a way forward. He is a way maker. If you are able to stand together. Thanks so much for listening to the sermon today. My name is Chris McDaniel. I am the pastor here on the west side at Trinity in Atlanta. At Trinity, our mission is to be a people who are growing into Christ's likeness. And if you want to find out more information about Trinity or get connected to the life of the church, please visit us at atltrinity.org. Thanks. God bless.